Father, thank you that we're able to meet together. Thank you for the lessons from Hannah. And Lord, I think every one of us in this room can relate to Hannah in some way. And so I pray that you'd open our hearts, prepare us to hear your message today. And Lord, uh, we've been running around this morning with little surprises, with AV and all that kind of stuff, and yet you're still in control. And so I just pray that you would uh, push aside all the distractions from our minds. I pray for Carolyn, um, that you would just speak powerfully to her this morning as we turn our attention to you. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you have probably, uh, when you've been looking at your computer or your iPhone, and maybe you've had it on for a while, and you have the news section up, or perhaps it's the the weather uh, radar map, and it's been a while since you looked at it, so you just hit the refresh button, and all of a sudden, all the new and latest things are there right for you to look at. I felt that kind of that way with the story of Hannah. We're all so familiar with it that I just asked the Lord, would you please hit the refresh button for me? And uh, I feel like that he, he did do that. Uh, and as I was thinking of her story, as I read through it again, uh, I saw that her story is a story of a great exchange. The part of American history that I love the most is the settling of the western frontier. As early even as the 1500s, the French and the Dutch and the British fur companies began to establish trading posts all along the rivers. This facilitated the settling of the west. By west, I mean past the Smoky Mountains. (laughs) Not the West like we think of it today, but anyway, they began to establish these trading posts to accommodate the burgeoning fur trade because European fashion was demanding an endless supply of beaver pelts so that they could make the felt hats that were so stylish that everyone on the continent was wearing them. Trappers would head out into the great unknown to hunt for beaver and they would set their traps, and they would come back with their canoes piled high with stinky beaver pelts to exchange for the supplies that they needed for survival as they went back out to replenish their stock. The Native Americans also joined in because they wanted uh, guns and iron tools and things that they could exchange for the beaver pelts. It was a mutually beneficial exchange. Each party traded something that they didn't need for something that they did need. I've had a few occasions in my own life when I've had a boatload of stinky pelts in my <laughs> possession, things that, that I needed God to exchange out of my life. Um, we see this in Hannah's situation as well. She has some heavy things in her canoe and only God can make the exchange that's needed for her there's been as I said many times in my life when I have felt that need for an exchange but none has been was felt more intensely than 
when I was waiting seven years for the Lord to save my husband. I was longing for a birth like Hannah, not a physical birth, but a spiritual rebirth for my husband. And I was weighed down by the longings that were unfulfilled, by the pain of of living in the home with a lost man when I was walking with the Lord the best I knew how. But as I prayed before the Lord, the change, that long sorrow and long, my longings and the pain of my circumstances for three graces, just as he did for Hannah in our story, in the story of her life that we read today in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Hundreds of years later, Isaiah would describe such an exchange in this way. In chapter 61, he says that, God would send his anointed one to bring good news to the afflicted and to the brokenhearted and to the mourners and to the captives. He would give them a garland instead of ashes. He would give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning. He would give them a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting so that he would be glorified. Instead of, it's a beautiful gospel preposition. I love prepositions. They're little bitty words, but they're relational words. They tell us how one thing is related to another. It's a a wonderful word. Maybe you have come here this morning, mourning over a situation in your life, an answer to prayer that you're longing for, a person who is... um, in need of God's love. Maybe you have an unsatisfied longing. Let that preposition, instead of, sink down into your soul. Exchange is possible. Hannah's story proves it. And we'll see today how God exchanges her bitter longing for three graces. The grace of silence, the grace of giving and the grace of rejoicing. As we move along through our lesson today, we're going to see several gospel prepositions that will help us understand the exchanges. The first of those is the preposition under. That will help us see how God met Hannah's need for the grace of silence. Hannah's living under her circumstances. They are weighing down and pressing down on her forcing her into a bitter desert kind of place with no apparent escape and no end in sight as far as she can see. We're all familiar with this story, but let's put ourselves as much as possible this morning into her situation. Let's feel her pain as we think about her circumstances. She was barren because the Lord had closed her womb. She had to share her, her husband with another wife, Peninnah, who not only had a lot of other children, we read sons and daughters, so that's at least four, maybe more. Um, she not only has several children, but she flaunts it in front of her um, rival. And year after year, we read in the scripture, year after year, She provokes Hannah, intentionally 
provokes her to tears. And she does it when their family is on the way to the feast. The feast is supposed to be a time of rejoicing. And there she is intentionally provoking her to tears. She has a husband who loves her deeply and who honors her. But poor soul, he doesn't get her problem. He doesn't understand the emotion that she's feeling. And he can't help resolve the problem that he doesn't understand. I'm sure that she has undoubtedly cried out to the Lord many times before the prayer that we read in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. Cried out for relief, but God's remained silent. It's really easy, isn't it, to get under the circumstances when we have longings and prayers that we have prayed that God is silent about. And I'm sure that the longer Hannah suffered under her circumstances, the more hopeless and desperate and bitter her life must have become. Why is God not answering? Is he doing anything at all in the silence? Sure doesn't seem like it, does it? But his silence is actually a manifestation of his grace. Because in the silence, he is making an exchange. She doesn't have to continue to live under her circumstances. Instead of her longing and her bitterness and disappointment and emptiness, he is in the process of giving her the supplies she needs before she launches out into the unknown of God's will when he does answer her prayer. He's building into her the strong character that she is going to need as she moves forward to do what God's given her to do. So let's take a look at a few of the things that God is doing in the silence. Hannah needs an unwavering faith to birth and to train up the child that God is going to give her, to train him to love God and and during the years when... He is still under her care. In the silence, she's learning to trust God as the Lord of hosts. That's how she addresses him in the prayer. The divine maker and controller of all things, the one for whom nothing is impossible. Lord of hosts is a name that was most often used by those who were in deep distress. And we see Hannah has come to the place where she knows him as the Lord of hosts and knows that he alone can create new life in her barren womb. She's also coming to understand her place as a, as the maidservant, trusting her master's plan and the timing of it as she waits for him to give her instructions. You know, though she doesn't know it and has no way to know it, Samuel needs to be born, must be born, at a certain time in history, at a certain place, to parents who will release him to do what God has given him to do. And when all these pieces are in place, and God is working on this silently, when all these pieces are in place, God will then answer her prayer. And in the meanwhile, in the silence, her faith is being strengthened. She's also going to need endurance in the days ahead. In the silence, she is learning to press on and not to let those painful circumstances and the long sorrow 
separate her from God. It's easy sometimes for that to happen, isn't it? Our sorrow gets between us and God. You know, at this point, Hannah has no idea what the future holds, but she does know one thing. She does know that she must press on through the disappointment, the distress, the desperation, the pain, the bitterness, or it will destroy her. She knows the only place she can go is right into the presence of God who will exchange those emotions and those her circumstances for one who is able to press on and endure and eventually bring her to the place of joy. She's going to need endurance in the days ahead because, you know, we read later that she takes a little coat up to her son every year. Now, isn't that a sweet picture? But think about when she has to turn around and go back home. She's got to endure in her obedience to release him to the care of Eli, who's not really all that good of a, of a father. <laughs> if you look at his kids, you can tell. Be hard to leave your child there. Hannah also needs the grace of self-control. In the silence, God is teaching Hannah the grace of silence herself in spite of repeated provocation by Peninnah. Hannah never loses control and verbally retaliates against her. In spite of her husband's lack of understanding, she never berates him. In spite of Eli's false accusations when he thinks she's drunk, she responds to him gently and respectfully. And she doesn't rail out against God either for not answering her prayer. In the silence, Hannah is learning the grace of silence. She's learning to respond with grace or not respond at all. And this very silence, under provocation and under pain and the circumstances she's in, will earn her the right to be heard later when she has something very important to speak aloud in the temple, in a public place. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. How are we responding to the grace of silence? What are we doing with the long sorrows and the emptiness and the unmet longings and the provocations in our life? We may be in a desert, a silent (laughs) desert kind of a place, but let's remember right underneath the surface, the seeds are hidden, just waiting for a little moisture before the desert breaks out into bloom God can bring his purposes to pass from the most dry and desolate and sorrowful spots his hand is not idle in the silence our God is beyond our imagination in his majesty in his power in his wisdom And often he works out his larger plan so silently that we don't even notice what he's doing. But in the fullness of time, he will bring to pass all that he intends, all that he's planned. And in the meantime, in the silence, he is making a great exchange in our hearts, building strong character in us. He's exchanging our unbelief for an unwavering faith He's exchanging our fainting 
for strong endurance. He's exchanging our self-indulgence for self-control. May we learn to see God's silence as the environment in which he does his glorious work of exchange in our hearts. Let's invite him to accomplish his good pleasure in us in the silence. Hannah needs another exchange. She needs to receive the grace of giving. The preposition before will help us see this exchange. By the time we get to 1 Samuel 1, 9, Hannah is not quite as far under her circumstances as she has been. We see her praying before the Lord. She brings her heart of sorrow and distress and bitter weeping before the Lord. And she finds that his heart is a very comforting retreat for a heart such as hers. She is safe there. As she bows before the Lord, she says, prays two things. She says, if you will look on my affliction and if you will remember me. The word remember does not mean that Hannah had that God had forgotten about Hannah. The word remember never means that in Scripture. It means to look on and contemplate with the intention to act. And so God's look and God's intention to act create in Hannah a giving, sacrificial heart. Let's look at that exchange. Somewhere in along the way, in her praying and in her waiting... Hannah has come to understand something not only of her own dark place where she is, but of the darkness of the age in which she lives. I'm sure she's noticed the corruption of the priesthood. We see that in in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, where Eli's sons are such a mess. Um, She's, I'm sure, has noticed the failure of the leadership with everyone doing what's right in his own eyes. So instead of asking for a child for herself to satisfy her own longings, she asks for a son for the Lord. And she promises, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And not only just give him to the Lord, but she says, I will dedicate him to the Lord as a Nazarite from birth. A razor will never come over his head. And you know, that meant a permanent, for her, that meant a permanent separation from her son. We would hardly have thought such a thing, such a sacrifice to be possible, would we? Given the number of years that she has prayed and prayed and prayed for a son. But God has made an exchange in her heart. He's given her um, a spirit of giving rather than being a taker. You know, the world is full of two kinds of people. There's the givers and the takers. Hannah does not come to the Lord to take something from him for herself. She comes to receive something from him that she can give back to him. She's And she, in doing so, she opens her life and the life of her son to the new and, and broader work that God has planned an amazing thing. So our question, what is the focus of our prayers? 
do we mostly ask for something for our own relief or our own comfort or our own personal fulfillment in our own little world? Or do we consider how we ourselves and the things we pray for might fit into God's global purposes? Are we willing to give back to God the very thing that we pray for? You know, when the Lord saved my husband, I was in for a revelation. I found out that the Lord had some global plans for that man that I didn't have on my agenda. Um, Especially, the Lord has given him a heart to sacrificially serve other people, and especially missionaries. Now, that sounds wonderful, but you know what? When he is sacrificially serving somebody else, he is not sacrificially serving me. <laughs> Necessarily. And I, I've, y'all know me. I've got a heart for missions. But I'm saying, this man is out there past the limit <laughs> sometimes. he lo- I mean, he's just a giver. And... Um, so I haven't always found it easy to release him into what God is, has for him. I find myself coming repeatedly to the Lord and thank the Lord for this, asking him to make that exchange in my heart to make me a giver. If I could just run the race and keep... You know, I used to worry when he was lost. You know, I've been a believer for all these years. How's he ever going to catch up with me? <laughs> ha, ha. I'm running for all I'm worth and can't keep up with him. So anyway, all that, what I'm saying is, God is forever breaking in uninvited to do what he's going to do to meet our real need, which is to have a need, to have a heart, um, to see the world from a different perspective, from a revolutionary perspective, to realize that God is the reality beneath, beyond, over, around, through all things. And he gives us life, and he answers our prayers for one purpose, one main purpose, and that is that we might give our life back to him, that we might give the answer to our prayers back to him, for him to use however he sees for his glory. He desires a giving heart focused on his global purpose. We read, God so loved the world that he gave. And he gave the most precious thing he had, his son. May we ask the Lord to exchange our self-indulgent prayers for prayers that have, uh, are, that come from a, a, I'll say, a wildly extravagant heart. All right, so by the time we come to chapter 2, A few years have passed. It's time now for Hannah to present her son to the Lord at Shiloh. She's had him for a few years. Now, this day could have ranked among the worst day of Hannah's life, Um, a day where she felt God was really just kind of asking too much to make her fulfill that vow. But she doesn't go there, does she? The preposition by is going to help us see Hannah's need for the grace of rejoicing. From an earthly perspective, we would have never envisioned the scene that we see in chapter 2. Imagine Hannah with her maternal instincts in full flower. There she has the answer to her prayer in her arms. 
and she's nursing her baby and she's nurturing her child in all the ways that he needs to be cared for, treasuring each little new thing he learns and each new uh, stage of his growth. She's taught him, she's teaching him the things of the Lord um, as much as his young mind can comprehend. And she is, I feel sure that she has informed him of his destiny and she has certainly taught him to love and worship God because when she brings him to the temple we read in verse 28 that the child worships God little small child where did he learn that he learned it at his mother's feet strong cords of love have bound her heart to this child so we would expect that when she goes to take him and release him there to the temple that she would once again be filled with the same kind of weeping and maybe even a little bitterness um, at the prospect of letting him go. Now, I can identify with this, and I'm sure every mother in here can. If you've ever taken your firstborn child for that first day to the nursery you know, or to nursery school, uh, you can understand the apprehension and the reluctance and the, the fears, maybe, of letting that child go. I'll, I'll remember when I took my daughter um, to nursery school for the first day, and I just felt like she was going to be clinging on my pants leg and, you know, really crying and weeping and carrying on. Well, she took off like a late freight, you know, <laughs> in that room and never looked back. <clears throat> I was the one crying. <laughs> but you can see how she might have felt releasing my spirit. And, and I mean, you know, I took my child to a really reputable nursery school and it was only for a couple of hours and if something happened, that was a five-minute drive away. So it was not like leaving her with Eli, you know, a long walk distance away. Um, there's nothing wrong with maternal instincts. Don't get me wrong. We all know God gave us those so our children don't die. Um. But neither Hannah nor we can let those maternal instincts rule and have the final say. We don't see her moaning and groaning like we would expect. Instead, we see that God has exchanged her natural instincts for the grace of a supernatural exaltation. That word means, exaltation means to delight to gloat over something, to uh, triumph in it, to bask in it. So you see, it's, it's not just rejoice. It's like super <laughs> exalting. I mean, it's just an uh, intense feeling of joy. As she releases Samuel to the Lord, Hannah prays again, and she's so filled with joy in her sacrifice that she's making and in the Lord that she sings aloud in the temple. My heart exalts in the Lord. I rejoice in thy salvation. And this prayer is more than just a prayer of rejoicing. It's actually, by the time she finishes, we see that it is also a stunning messianic prophecy. I want us to feel the full force of this prophecy from Hannah's mouth when we get to verse 10. Um, and in order to do that, I've put on your tables there a, a a handout because it's impossible it would be impossible in the time we have for you to to uh, you know write all that down 
and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it right now, but you can tuck it. I think it's cut so you you can tuck it right in your book and and look at it later. But this, uh, prior to this time when Hannah is alive, God has only revealed a very few things about the one that he is going to send to redeem the world. And what is on this sheet is all that Hannah possibly could have known. She may not have known all of it, but it's all she could possibly have known about the Messiah up to this point because it's all that had been revealed. And I'm just going to zoom through what's on that list so that you see what she knew, and then when you see what she says, it's even more amazing. She knew, or could have known, that the Messiah... And she didn't even know the word Messiah yet. Let's just say she knew the one whom God would send would be the seed of the woman who'd crush the head of the serpent. He would dwell with the Gentiles. He'd be of Abraham's line and bless all the families of the earth. A scepter would come from Judah and have the right to rule. A star would come from Jacob who would rule and crush the enemies. A prophet would come who would speak the very words of God. An arbitrator or mediator or witness would would come. He would be the ultimate kinsman redeemer and he would come with a ransom and he would interpret all of life's mysteries you see that's that was it that was the sum total of what had been revealed about the one who was to come so into that small but magnificent flow of prophecy carried along by the holy spirit in her prayer hannah now speaks for the first time a new name messiah anointed one. And we see that in verse 10. Listen to her spirit-inspired words in verse 10 of chapter 2. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. There's that word anointed. It's the same word as Messiah. This one will make the great exchange that everyone needs. No wonder Hannah is filled with joy as she contemplates what God is, a, is bringing about and what he has promised. She sees the ultimate great exchange that he is going to make, not just in her own life, but globally. As we read down through the prayer, we see that he is going to reverse the weakness and the hunger and the barrenness and the death and poverty and neediness and shame that affects humanity. All those things are, are listed there in her prayer. And instead of those things, he's going to bring about a salvation that will deliver us into great joy. The very child that Hannah delivers over to Samuel, excuse me, to Eli, the very child that Hannah delivers over to Eli at the temple in Shiloh is the one who will install on the throne, on the the kingly line of David who will through whom the Messiah will come Hannah's prayer reminds us in chapter 2 reminds us of the promise of redemption a thousand years later and that's a long time a thousand years later when that very Messiah was conceived in the womb of the virgin Mary Adopted the words of Hannah. Hannah's song so resonated with Mary that she used even some of the very same words to sing praise to God for the Redeemer 
that she was now carrying in her own womb. So our question, when we are faced with the sacrificial release of our dearest treasures to God, as we pray, does the intense joy that God gives us, does that overpower our sense of loss? How much do our prayers reflect the, the, the certainty, the joyful certainty of what God is able to do? He's able to reverse the insurmountable difficulties that we face. Not only that we face, but those of the whole world. What God does in our own little world is not meant to stay in our own little world. It's meant to inform our public, joyful testimony to the larger audience of those around us so that the body of Christ can be built up, so that the lost will know that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. God is able to recalibrate our loss into joy, into joyful praise. May he exchange our narrow, at least mine, maybe yours is not as narrow as mine is, but our grasping, our narrow, inward focus on our own little world as we pray for the wider view of what he's doing in the bigger picture globally. Um, He is working toward fulfilling his plan at all times, in all places. Maybe you find yourself, as I have, um, and as Hannah did, among the weak and the hungry and the barren and the lifeless and the poor and needy and shamed. God is, at this very moment, ready to make a great exchange in our hearts. The pain of our unmet longings can be the weight that pushes us into the Lord's presence before him, casting ourselves on him in prayer. And as we do, we find that he equips us to see all the way through to the glory that's to come, to see all the way through and joyfully speak of what he is able to do and what he has done in making a great exchange in our lives. I want to do something a little different as we close this morning. Maybe the Lord has touched your heart in one of these areas, put his finger on something. Um, I hope so. Um, I would like for us to pray. I've got a prayer up here on the, or we'll have in a second up on the screen. If we could just pray that together aloud. I don't want you to do it if, unless you feel it, okay? So I'm not, just not, you don't have to do this. I don't want it to be empty words. But if the Lord has pricked your heart in an area where you need to receive an exchange, let's pray these pray- this prayer together. And there'll be three slides that that um, will come up, and we can just read it together. And you know you don't have to shut your eyes when you pray. It'd be hard to read with your eyes shut. <laughs> All right, let, let's pray together. Lord, I receive from you the grace of silence. 
as you build strong character in me. I receive from you the grace of giving as you create in me a generous heart focused on your global purposes. I receive from you the grace of rejoicing, a heart of praise that will overpower any sense of loss that I may feel. In Jesus' name, amen.